Good morning. Great to be with you guys as we begin our, or begin, as we continue our series called Reconstruction. And we started this series uh, last week, and we're on week two out of four. And so uh, I encourage you to lean in. Uh, I don't know how many of you guys are handy people. You know, we just talked about building houses, building houses in El Salvador. Uh, I've been on the El Salvador trip. I've been on the Mexico trip many, many times uh, and uh, I've been on that trip, and I think contributed somewhat, even though I'm not a very, very handy person. Uh, and so if I can do it, I'm sure you can do it too. Uh, last year, we uh, built out our basement, or I guess it was, it was last year, a couple years ago. Anyways, recently we built out our basement, uh, and we wanted to do it uh, as efficiently as possible, but I realize that's a bit of a challenge because I don't know how to build anything, and I'm not very handy. Uh, and so we hired some friends from... With, within the church to help us out, and, uh, and we started getting going and framing the, the basement, and uh, my friend uh, John, uh, we hired and was helping us out. John's here. I, I saw him earlier. Where are you, John? Oh, right there. He's like, don't mention my name. I don't want to be associated with the basement, uh, but uh, we hired John, and I, and I kind of helped John out. I helped John by making lattes for him and bringing them into the basement. John, you want a coffee? Uh, Lisa... I can't bake either. So Lisa baked cookies, and I would be the person to bring the cookies into the basement. Uh, my buddy Trent also helped out. And Trent actually said, uh, you can bring more than a latte. Why don't you help me uh, frame a couple of these walls here? And, and so I cut some boards, and I framed some stuff. Uh, and then when Trent came and looked at what I had done, he grabbed the pencil, you know, one of those construction pencils from me, uh, and went to the, the frame of the door that I just put together, and he wrote Matt on it. Uh, and I said, why are you writing my name on it? He was like, I just don't want to be associated with what you just did. Uh, I, want, I need people to know that that wasn't me. Um, so I don't know if, if you're one of those handy people. If, I think because I'm not, I'm somewhat fascinated with those renovation shows. You know, the HGTV, uh, you got the fixer-upper shows, and you can watch a project. Uh, somebody who has kind of this house, and they reconstruct, uh, renovate their house, and it's kind of fascinating. And uh, so, so for some of the situations, people come in and there's a house and it's, it's, not an ideal, it's not an ideal house and they have this vision or this idea of what they want out of it. And sometimes you look at the house, you're like, it's fine, but they want to remake it into something else. And so we as uh, people watching the show were infatuated with this idea of something that currently exists being remade into something that looks different, but it's still carries on some pieces from that which was previously there as well. And so this is the idea of renovation or deconstruction and reconstruction. And this uh, shows us, I think, a neat little picture of what we're talking about when we talk about the series. Uh, And so last week we talked about reconstruction, deconstruction, and then the cycle that we kind of go through. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more. Uh, but I think that idea of that house that, that's being renovated is a good picture for us. We all have this house. We all have this construction in our lives, this faith construction, this spiritual construction, this theological, how we think about God, the world, ourselves, construction. And as we go through our lives, we go through a renovation period and we think, you know, this isn't exactly all I want it to be. It, this isn't exactly, it doesn't seem to be working for me. It doesn't seem to be practical, practical at one time in my life. It's felt like it really fit me. Uh, And now, 10 years later, I feel like this whole thing needs to be renovated. And this is the cycle of life. This is the cycle of growth. And so when we talk about deconstruction, what are we talking about? So as we talked about last week, deconstruction just means the dismantling, uh, the unraveling of really anything. And so you deconstruct uh, architecture, you take it apart, Uh, you can deconstruct pies like we talked about, you can deconstruct Uh, really anything. And so when we apply it to our belief systems, our theological worldview, uh, what we're saying is we had a constructed view and we're going to take the pieces apart. But deconstruction is different than destruction. Deconstruction and destruction are not the same thing. We don't tune in to the fixer-upper show and watch Chip and Joanna Gaines destroy a house. You know, we don't tune in to see them just 
completely bomb or demolish a house and see them standing at the end on top of a heap of rubble and say, thanks for tuning in. That's not why we watch it. That would be destruction. We watch it because there's an end point in mind. There's this idea and this hope for the future that we're like, I wonder what this could turn into. Sometimes when we talk about deconstruction in our culture, in our world, we're actually not talking about deconstruction. We're talking about destruction. Destruction. We're talking about people that only have in mind ruining, destroying, but they don't necessarily have a picture of the future or a desire or a hope or a goal in mind. And so when you come to remodeling your house, when you come to reimagining what the future could be, you come with some kind of idea, some kind of motive. You know, when I start renovating my basement, I, I come with a motive, a hope, a plan of what this could be. You know, you imagine in your head, like, my, my kids are going to sleep here. They're going to have this own ba- their own bathroom finally. They don't have to share between the three of them. Uh, they're gonna be this, there's going to be this open space that they can play. And you, so you have these ideas in your head. And you say, this is the hope and the goal and the motive of why I'm doing this. Motives matter. Motives is the difference between deconstructing something and destroying something. And so this morning, we're, the talk I, I've just titled, Let's Be Honest. Because when it comes to dismantling faith, theology, what we believe to be true, we have to be honest about what our motive is and why we're doing it. Because that's the difference between whether we're deconstructing or we're just destroying something. And I think much of what we call deconstruction is actually just, we're kind of going along with the cultural stream of just destroying everything without an idea or a hope or a goal or a future, or a plan of what this could look like in the future. So last week, we talked about the cycle. We looked at the life of Mary, and so Mary had this idea of Jesus. She lost Jesus when Jesus was 12 years old, and she went and found Jesus. She had to rethink everything she knew about Jesus, uh, and then she had to keep going. And this happened a couple of times throughout her life. We looked at her story, and this is the cycle of growth. Uh, This is a cycle of spiritual growth, of growing in our faith. That our understanding of who God is, is always limited because we are finite beings, right? And so as we experience God, as we grow, as we have experiences in life, we have to rethink the house that we used to live in. But the point is not to destroy the house we used to live in. The point is to keep going and have a goal and a direction in mind. As we said, lots of Theologians have different words for this, and we, I'm, we're looking particularly at the words that A.J. Soboda uses in his book, After Doubt, theological construction, deconstruction, reconstruction. And so we all construct a certain picture of who God is and who we are and our understanding of the world. Uh, and then as life goes on, just as we talked about in the idea of re-renovating your house, remodeling your house, uh, we realize it doesn't work quite the way we thought it would, or there's different experiences, and so we deconstruct it. But that's not the end goal. We move to a remodeling phase of reconstruction. And so before we jump forward today, I just want to note that in talks three and four of this series, we are going to look at how to reconstruct uh, in a healthy and positive way. Uh, But today I want to help us understand what's actually happening between points one and two. What is actually behind our construction And then why do we move to this phase of deconstruction, the motives sometimes that are behind uh, that process? And so as we go around the circle, we call this a helix. This is the process of growth. Uh, And so think of it not as just a merry-go-round going around in circles your whole life, but you're actually going around and you're going deeper and deeper. If you think of a spiral spiral staircase, a hair case, I'm not sure what a hair case is, Uh, but if you think of a spiral staircase and you go around it, you're not, you're not ending at the same spot every time. You are going higher and higher and higher. If you think of a bolt or a screw, every time that thing goes around, it's not in the same place that it was. It's going deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. I think this is a proper and healthy understanding of spiritual growth and faith development throughout our lives. We're not going in circles. Yes, there's times where we have to rethink, restructure, deconstruct, reconstruct, but we're going around in circles and we're going deeper and deeper and deeper into our faith into, if we put our faith in Jesus, into our relationship with Jesus. But that means sometimes we have to let go of things and take on new things. And this is the cycle, the helix of growth. Jesus, or in Ecclesiastes, Solomon said, 
There's a time for everything, a time to tear down and a time to build. And so there is a time. There's a time in our lives where it's important to tear down, and there's a time in our life where it's time to build. We don't just build endlessly, and we don't just tear down endlessly. If you're always tearing down and that's your life, you become a very cynical, depressed, hopeless person. And I believe that we want, and God wants more for us than that. And we actually come from deconstruction. I don't know if you know this, but we come out of a movement of deconstruction. It was called the Reformation in the 16th century. There was a guy named Martin Luther who was looking around at the church as he knew it at the time, the Catholic church, and he said, this doesn't seem right. There seems to be some things that are off. It seems like politics and religion have gotten together that what Jesus had in mind is very different than what we're experiencing as a church. And so he kind of uh, is kind of looked at as the leader of that Reformation movement, but him and other leaders basically said, we have to deconstruct what is happening. And so that is referred to as the Reformation, the reforming of what was being practiced at the time. But even further than that, we as a church actually come from the Anabaptist movement. And so there was the Reformation movement, the Protestant movement that Martin Luther and others were leading into reforming the church, right? The word Protestant comes the word protest. They were protesting what was, replacing it with something different. And then there was the Anabaptist movement, which is referred to as the Radical Reformation that looked at what the Reformers were doing and said, that's not radical enough. You need to deconstruct further. There needs to be completely separation between religion and politics. There needs to be complete separate. There, there needs to get rid of like this hierarchy of spiritual elites and everybody else. And we're all on the same page under God. And so the Radical Reformation actually pushed it further from what was. And so we came out of a deconstruction movement. This faith movement that we are a part of was part of a deconstruction movement in history. But even more than that, let's turn back the historical clock even further. The entire Christian faith came out of a deconstruction movement. Jesus deconstructed. It's true. We think this is new to us. You know, have you ever like found one of those bands and you're like, you know, this is my new favorite band and you, you are like, this happened to me a few times where I find some, you shazam something and you're like, oh, I found this band. Nobody's ever heard of them. And like a year later, everybody's heard of them. And you're like, I know I found the band. And you're almost like, come on, this is old school. Like Jesus, like this whole deconstruction thing that's going on. I know I did that. It's not as new and cool as you think. It's been happening for a long time. Jesus deconstructed the religious world that he was a part of. Jesus deconstructed the political, cultural world that he was a part of. This is why he was in hot water with both the religious elites and the political elites, that people didn't know what to do with him because he was tearing things down. Jesus was a deconstructionist. Jesus was not what we often think in this guy, guy that was per- perpetuating tradition and religion Uh, He was pushing back and doing something that was both new and ancient at the same time, which is what we're going to talk about over the next few weeks. Jesus said this, No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, otherwise the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse, and no one pours new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wine would burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins would be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. So Jesus is talking about this new wine. It was tempting to make uh, it fit into old wineskins, but if you know anything about this, this time and this process, if you put new wine into old wineskins, the old wineskins would crack open and the wine would be ruined and it would be spilt. And so Jesus is saying, there's a new thing that I'm doing, that God is doing, and it doesn't fit in the practices and the traditions, the way that we have thought it to. And if we're going to actually get on board with what God is doing, it's going to look different than it has. And Jesus, throughout his ministry, used other metaphors for deconstruction as well. He talked about tearing down the temple and rebuilding in three days. He talked about how you have to lose your life to gain your life. He talked about how that a grain of wheat had to die and fall to the ground before it would grow and something new would come in in its place. And so what, he, what is he talking about? These cycles of life and death and growth, this helix of going deeper and deeper 
and deeper. And so as we look at the process of deconstruction, we need to recognize that every time we go around, we are not, we are not starting again. We are not starting new. We're not going around in circles, but we are in the process of what Jesus has been doing for a long time and what he was talking about even 2,000 years ago. We are not the first ones to go around. Jesus continues in Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, his, his most famous kind of teaching. It goes over the course of a few different chapters, and I would encourage you to read it and recognize as he's going through it, how he's deconstructing the cultural and political world, how he's deconstructing the religious world. But he hits the section in Matthew 5, and he starts to use this idea. He says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And when he says, you have heard it said, he's referring to this religious uh, Judaism, uh, this historical understanding about who God is, how to practice faith. And he's saying, you have heard it said to the people long ago. Verse 1, he says, you shall not murder. But I say to you, anyone who looks at anger, looks angry at a brother or a sister, is actually in danger of judgment, will be subject to judgment. So you have to pay attention to your heart. It's not just about the act of murder. So you've heard it said this, but I say to you, it's actually not about that. It's about this. And then he says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. He said, but I say to you, even if you look at somebody with lust in your eye, you've already committed adultery in, in your heart. And so you've thought it was about this, but it's actually about this. You thought it's that, but it's actually about this. You've heard it said, and he talks about divorce. He goes on, you have heard it said, and he talks about uh, thing after thing. He talks about how people long ago made oaths, and you shouldn't make oaths. He talked about how people, uh, and this came from the Old Testament, that uh, you should do an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, and you should, get, you should exact vengeance and justice. And Jesus says, no, it shouldn't be that way. I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. And so Jesus was turning everything on his head. He was reconstructing the world as they knew it. So was Jesus deconstructing or was he destroying? Was Jesus deconstructing or destroying? Jesus didn't set out to destroy anything. Jesus, the foundation of our own deconstruction, didn't set out to destroy anything. He had the end in mind. He had a motive behind what he was doing. He had a dream and a vision and a goal. He was bringing and proclaiming something called the kingdom of God. And so he didn't set out just to destroy something and, be, and leave a rubble behind. He was actually painting something much more bigger and beautiful than they could have imagined. Jesus was uncovering the Jewish religious history that was all supposed to point to him to begin with, but people had added things throughout the years. People had taken away things throughout the years, and so he was kind of pushing through the mess and deconstructing what had become to get back to the heart of the thing. In fact, before the whole you've heard it said thing, but I say to you thing, Jesus started this whole thing, this whole sermon that he was saying with these words, do not think that I have come to abolish the law. Everybody say, abolish. Don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to what? Fulfill them. So Jesus is saying, I didn't come just to demolish and destroy the law and everything that, that was there before I came here on earth. I've not come to destroy it. I've actually come to fulfill them. I've actually come to bring it to the goal and the completion of everything that it was pointing towards. And yes, over time, there was things it became about that it was actually never supposed to be about. We added things to it that we didn't add to it. There's some things that we need to take away from it that used to be a part of it, but won't be anymore because of what I'm doing. But I have come not to destroy it, not to leave a rubble behind, but I've come to actually construct something and bring it to its fulfillment. Jesus had a motive. He had a purpose. He said that he was fulfilling and getting to the heart of what everything was about to begin with. Jesus was able to separate the religious ideas and the cultural ideas and throw them away, but yet bring us back to the core foundation of faith. Now this word law, he says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. The, words law, the word law is namos. Everybody say namos. So namos is translated as law. And the law and the prophets would have referred to the Torah, the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, a short form for the Old Testament. Jesus is saying, I didn't come to destroy the namas, the Torah, the law, the Old Testament. I've come to fulfill them. 
Uh, and the belief was that the Torah and the prophecies from the Old Testament was a light that were showing people and directing people towards what was true. That it was going to guide them into the way. It was going to guide them into the true life. It was going to guide them into truth itself. So Torah was seen as a guide bringing us to a certain point in time when people would know the way, the truth, the life. And Jesus is saying, I didn't come to destroy that. I actually came to fulfill it, be the end point of it, the law, the namas. Now that word namas, we use in English. We use it in the word autonomous, autonomous. Namas means law, auto means self. And so when we think about deconstruction, the way that we do deconstruction, I think often what happens in our culture is that we start tearing things down, but the point of it is actually to become a self-law, to become an autonomous person, where we have no constraints. We have nothing telling us what to do, who we should be, how we ought to live, and so we deconstruct not to fulfill a law or to fulfill a goal or with an end in mind, but we deconstruct with ourselves in mind as the end goal. To be comfortable, to be secure, to be right, to be powerful, to be in control. This is actually the motive. Let's get honest. Let's be honest here. This is the motive behind why many of us deconstruct is because we have put ourselves in the center of our own world. We've become a self-law. Jesus didn't come and say, I have come to abolish the law. I've come to be an autonomous, a self-law. No, he's saying I came to fulfill the end goal, and this was the motive of Jesus. But is it the motive that we have when we start tearing our own worlds apart? I don't think so. And so the question is, how did we get to this place where we use the word deconstruction, but really what we're doing is destruction. How did we get to this place in time? Uh, and so I want you to bear with me, but I want to talk a little bit about our cultural climate, the philosophical undercurrent that's behind our culture, the reasons we think the way that we think. When I go to therapy, and I go to therapy sometimes, uh, you know, often the conversations that people have in therapy are... Where did you get that idea from? What religious background did you get it from? Uh, what about your parents? And so we, we deconstruct what we learn from our religious backgrounds. We deconstruct what we learn from our parents and places of authority. But I have actually very rarely heard people deconstruct what we have learned from our culture. In fact, so much of the way that we think, the lies that we believe and the truths that we believe and how we understand the world comes from the culture that we are currently a part of. It is the air that we breathe. It's like we are fishies in an ocean. Uh, and you can imagine, if you're a fish growing up in the ocean, it's all, you ever, it's all you ever know. All you know is water. You live and you breathe in this water. You don't even know a world outside of it. You don't know land. You don't know, you know, you don't, you know oxygen because oxygen is in water. But you know what I mean. You, you, this is the world that you know. We live in a world and a culture in a philosophical understanding at a certain point in history that influences the way that we all think. And so, yeah, it's important to deconstruct religion. It's important to deconstruct the things that we've learned from our families and our childhood. That's all really important. I'm not speaking against that. But it's also equally important, as Jesus was doing, was to deconstruct the things that we've learned in our culture and world and not assume that the way that we think is the right way or the true, or, or that we're telling ourselves the truth. And so, let's go back in time. I'm going to talk about modernism. Uh, so, modernism, uh, so these are terms that are talked a lot about in f philosophy or sociology. Modern, modernism came from the Enlightenment movement, which is an intellectual movement in the 18th century that emphasized reason and science. This coincided, this was going in parallel with the Industrial Revolution that was also happening in the 18th century. So, the, the Industrial Revolution was a movement that was going away from agrarian farming to industrial ways of commerce. Uh, it was going from localized 
business models to more globalized business models. It was going from uh, you know, where we work with our arms and our hands and our feet and we're doing physical labor to now we're building machines to do things more efficiently that we as people used to do. And so the goal became to do things more efficiently. The goal became to do things on a larger scale, to make it more profitable, to make it easier. And so everything became utilitarian. So by that, I mean everything was, had to be more efficient, had to be more effective, had to be done at a larger scale. And so this, uh, this intellectual movement of relying on science and reason, along with this industrial movement of looking at more efficient ways to do life together, kind of created the cultural climate for what we refer to now as modernism. There was a scientific answer to every problem. If we didn't know the answer, it's just because we didn't know the science yet. And we, we believed that if we just studied hard enough, if we kept working at it, that we would come to an understanding that would unlock all truth. If we worked at it hard enough, we would come up with the next invention or idea that would make this all suddenly work. Uh, and so this started to affect everything. As a side note, as someone who kind of, uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't come from the world of farming or engineering, but I came from the world of, you know, studying theology and scripture. Even as, as a side note, the way that we studied scripture and understood theology changed in modernism. There was something, there was a movement that we started to do in terms of reading our Bibles that's referred to as the grammatical, historical method of reading your Bible. And so even the thought of how we read our Bible was we have to understand the background, the science, the languages, learn the Greek language, learn the Hebrew language. The more that you can understand the science behind the Bible, the more that you would unlock truth. And there was a belief that there was a system. You know, we could unpack the systematic theology. If we understood the system, then we would be more enlightened, okay? So this was affecting everything. It wasn't just secular, and then there was religious. It was affecting our whole world and the way that we understood everything. The Industrial Revolution and the Enlightenment was unlocking human potential. There was nothing we couldn't figure out. The assumption was that we had reached this new era in human history, that everything was solvable. It was just one uh, revolution away, one discovery away, uh, that there was going to be this time that we were going to move into as humanity, an era of post-conflict where there wouldn't be war anymore, an era where we would gently slide towards this future that was both diverse and tolerant, an era where the future uh, of humanity would have more connection, more cooperation, that technology was going to bring us together, an area where the globalization would lead to this wonderful new world where we weren't separated anymore and we would share resources together. Immanuel Kant, Kant was a philosopher and a key figure during the Enlightenment period, and he dreamed of a community of nations in which they would share global laws, there would be international cooperation, and there would be this perpetual peace on earth that would happen. And we were moving into this era as humanity, uh, and this is referred to, the thinking of this time is referred to as modernism. Except World War I happened. The faith and optimism of the Enlightenment would be disrupted. Everything that we assumed would start to happen as technology advanced and humans advanced, and everything would just get better and better and better. It turned out that things just didn't get better and better and better. And if there was any optimism and hope left after World War I, World War II crushed it completely. You know, we thought that we were amazing because we could fly. We thought that we were amazing because we could build automobiles and we could drive around, but we didn't realize, yes, we could fly, and that meant that we could build fighter planes. We didn't realize that that meant, yes, we could drive, but that meant that we could build army tanks. So this assumption that more technological advancement was going to make us a greater and greater uh, humanity, we were going to be greater and greater humans, our, our civilization was become more and more peaceable, turned out to be a lie. And so this would bring a devastating blow to enlightenment thoughts after millions of death, deaths after Hiroshima, after de Nazi death camps, after these things would happen in our history. It was impossible to ignore the assumption that the enlightenment, the revolution, the technology, the science, the reason was the answer to our world's problems. We realized it just created bigger and bigger problems. And so there must be, we must be missing something. And that critique of modernism is true. That science, reason, technology was not the answer to the world's problems. And so 
you can just think of this pendulum swinging, this modern time where we're relying on our intellect and science and our own optimism and hope and our ability to create and invent things and realize that doesn't work and everything starts swinging the other way and we move into an era of postmodernism. So postmodernism is a 20th century movement and it's, and as you know where we're going, this is the era, this is the water, this is the air that we breathe, that we live in, that we don't even think about all the time. So this movement is characterized by broad skepticism, subjectivism, relativism, where truth is relative, where you can't actually understand anything for, for sure, a general suspicion of reason, an acute sensitivity to ideologies, a lot of sensitivity towards anybody who, who is in authority or has, or has power. And so there's a distrust in postmodernism to those who are educated, to those who are leaders. And I'm not saying that's unfounded, but what I am saying is that we went from putting all of our trust into external authorities and traditions and people in charge and leaders and education to swinging the other way and saying, well, we can't trust anything. We, can tr- we can't trust anybody who's in charge because, as we talked about last week, the assumption is that there's manipulation behind everything that's being done and decided and written. And so long story short, suspicion against any meta narrative, any absolute truth, any authority marks postmodernism. Postmodernism is the reaction against modernism but it's the reaction against modernism and the experiment of modernism that went wrong. So the philosopher Charles Taylor wrote about how the West changed from a culture of authority to a culture of authenticity. And so what that means is we actually exchange external authority structures in our lives, science, governments, God, the Bible, tradition, anything outside of our lives that told us what was true We exchanged that, we swung this way, and we thought that authenticity, the authentic self, the eternal self, was the place of truth. But very quickly realized that everybody had different truths when truth was rooted in who we are as a person, and so we start thinking about, well, what's true for you is might be true for you, but what's true for me is true for me. It's incongruent with this idea of something's true, it's absolutely true, but, you know, besides the point, postmodernism says... You decide on your own truth. So how did this affect how we read the Bible? Well, we went from historical grammatical method of reading the scriptures. uh, And so then it moved to textual criticism. Not to go down that rabbit trail, but textual criticism is basically uh, what you read on the Bible isn't the full truth. The most important thing is how you feel when you read the Bible. What does the text mean to you? And there's probably things behind the text that make that text untrustworthy. And so they deconstructed parts of the Bible. This is probably true. This probably isn't true. This is historic. This isn't historic. We, we reacted against modernism to this, I, this way of reading the Bible that kind of led the way to your experience with the Bible is actually all about you and what you get out of it. The motive of why it was written is actually less important. It changed how we understand truth. If we rejected every outside authority outside of our lives, how could we ever arrive at truth? Truth becomes relative. Sigmund Freud had a huge impact on our Western understanding of culture, how we understand postmodernism. Pleasure is the ultimate. We're miserable as people when we suppress our desires, right? So if there's an external source working against what you want, we call that oppressive. If there's an internal source that you feel something that is telling you not to act on your desires, we call that repressive. So anything that is pushing against your own desire and what you want is either oppressive or repressive. And so there's certain Freudian phrases that we use in our culture all the time. You do you. Follow your heart. The Nike slogan, just do it. You guys know it. Speak your truth. If it feels good, do it. Be true to yourself. The self is the center. It's dangerous. In fact, this says, you know, I don't want us not to be able to sing worship songs anymore, but look at the worship songs that we sing today. You know, if you look at the worship songs from the modern period of history into the postmodern period of history, you know, 
the old hymns used to talk about the glory of God, who, who God is. It, they used to be theological truths that we would sing, that we remind ourselves of as we sing. The songs that we sing now are really about, uh, God, it's about me. This is where I'm at. God, where are you? I need you. You know, not that these are bad things. I don't want us to come into church next week and be like, I can't sing these songs anymore. Uh, but just pay attention that there's a shift where we've talked about coming under an authoritative truth to actually my experience being the most important thing. It's affected even how we do faith. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so here's the counter to the postmodern idea of truth is that truth isn't an idea. Truth isn't found in yourself. So truth is neither modern or postmodern. Truth isn't an some idea out there that we're trying to discover that's going to unlock the, you know, the history of humanity or the future of humanity. Truth isn't in yourself. Jesus is telling us, whether we choose to believe him or not, this is what Jesus says, that truth is a person. That the nomos, the law, the Old Testament, everything that history was actually moving towards was the person of Jesus. And if you want to know what is true, you're not going to understand an academic or intellectual idea. Your understanding of truth will come when you know a person in relationship. Jesus is saying this is actually the foundation of what is true. Truth is encountered in a relationship. Christianity, at its core, what it's supposed to be, is neither modern nor postmodern. It moves beyond an outside authority. It moves beyond that interior authority and brings us to a relationship with someone on the outside who is Jesus how did this understanding impact our idea of freedom? I'm not sure there's any, any word that's been more misunderstood in Christian circles than freedom. Uh, when we talk about freedom, we usually talk about negative freedom. And so what negative freedom refers to is freedom from something. From, so our idea of freedom in our culture is to remove anything that hinders my pleasure, my comfort, my life, my goals, my hopes, my dreams, So we need freedom from things. But did you know that this has not been the understanding of freedom for most of history? This has not been the understanding of freedom that we see in Scripture. Positive freedom is freedom not from something, but freedom for something. Not just permission to choose anything, but permission to choose the thing that is good and true and beautiful. Now think about this just for a second. Reflect on this, that people who practice freedom in our day and their understanding of freedom is to get rid of every constraint that is hindering them and holding them back that is against anything they want. Do they become more and more and more free over their life or do they become less and less free? We become less free. We become more enslaved when we let what we want, what we desire, when we let our center be the center of our own world, we actually become less and less free. How do addictions happen? How do people get stuck in ruts? How do you get people stuck in places of discontentment? You know, we, we've actually made our experience in our life the center of our own world, and we understand that as freedom. We are not as free as we think. In fact, outside of the Christian tradition, philosophers throughout history have talked about the importance of having external things in our lives that help us become the person that we would want to be. This has sometimes been talked about in terms of vices and virtues, that we have vices, these things that we slide towards as human beings, but virtues are things that we want to uh, mark us, be characteristics of us. And so we create rhythms and practices in our lives that aren't easy but are good and important because we want to become a certain type of person. So we create disciplines. We create habits. We create practices. Because left to our own devices, we don't actually become more free beings. We become less free. And so positive freedom is freedom for something. And Jesus actually brings us this message, this gospel message that he came to free us from bondage. And it's not just by letting go of everything, it's by coming under something in particular, the lordship of Jesus. This is the irony of the gospel. When we, become, when we come under Jesus, when we submit ourselves to Jesus, we become more free. That sounds like blasphemy in our culture. How can submission be linked to freedom? Well, it depends on who or what you're submitting to. When we say in our culture, I'm not submitting to anybody, that's not true. You are submitting to the cultural message of our time. That's what you've submitted to. That is what you have believed to be true. And you think, we think that we're thinking independently, but we're not. 
This is the air that we breathe. How does it impact identity? Well, who I say I am is who I am. Who I want to be is who I am. I get to decide for myself. Whereas historically, we looked at family systems, structures. We looked at authority figures. We looked at scripture. We looked at what God thought about us to actually name us. Now, granted, I'm not saying that's all good. There's things that we need to deconstruct from that because what your parents saw in you was not necessarily what God saw in you. But the whole point is that in the modern time, we look to external structures to tell us who we are. In the postmodern time, we look to ourselves to discover who we are. Alan Bloom wrote a a fascinating book, The Closing of the American Mind. And he said, once we get rid of external structures, once we get rid of authority, external authority things in our lives, we are going to be left with a culture that has a pandemic of anxiety and depression. Because we're going to have individuals that have no idea who they are and we're not going to be will- we won't be willing to tell anybody who they are. And the fear of telling somebody who they are is going to prevent anybody from actually coming to grips with who they are. And so in our postmodern world, we actually have a hard time figuring out who we are, but we put so much energy into figuring out who we are, figuring out who our identity is. And Jesus is, and the scriptures are telling us that God has actually created us to be somebody from the very beginning. So, everybody take a deep breath with me. Wow, that's a lot of stuff. So what I'm trying to do is help us understand in this process of one, two, three, construction, deconstruction, reconstruction, that even at phase one, the house that you are living in, the things that you assume and take for granted, the thing that you just think is natural and normal, it came from somewhere. The way that you think came from somewhere. The way that you understand who you are, the way that you understand how do I figure out what is true. Like this is, this is worldview paradigm shifting stuff. But we think that we are autonomous how, in how we think. We are not autonomous. We are not as free and autonomous as you think. We are a product of our cultural time. This is why deconstruction is primarily a movement and a conversation in the Western world and not the Eastern world because uh, the movements and the cultures are different. The belief systems are different. We come from a certain belief system that has brought us to the space and time that is thinking the way that we're thinking, asking the questions that we're asking. And that's fine, but we got to understand that this is the air that we breathe. This is the water that we are swimming in. And so what do we do? What, what do we construct with? We construct with our worldview. We construct with our geography, where we are born. That matters. We construct with when we are born, the time, the way that people think, our affluence, our economic class. We construct with religion. We construct with what our parents said. We construct with our siblings, our friends, our education. All these things are building the house that we live in. And so when we deconstruct, When we deconstruct, we have to recognize that these things are already part of our assumptions. And we are, when we are deconstructing the world that we're living in, we are not necessarily deconstructing Christianity or who Jesus is. In fact, we have taken in our time these values of postmodernism, we have baptized the gospel in postmodernism. What do I mean by that? Well, when we preach, we talked about how that affects our worship songs. When we preach, when we present the gospel, it often becomes about people. It becomes about their destiny. It becomes about, you know, becoming the person that God wants you to be, you know, figuring out what you're called to in your life. You know, I, I preach these messages all the time. So I, I get it. Uh, but here, the postmodern theme behind what we, we presented. In the extreme form, it becomes, you know, if you follow Jesus, you will be healthier. You will be more comfortable. You will be more secure. You will be wealthier. God has a plan and a destiny for your life, and it's good, and it's exactly what you want. He wants to give you the desires of your heart. Blah, blah, blah. This is Christianity clothed in postmodernism. Do, do, do you hear it? So, when that's our understanding of Christianity, and we don't get healthier. When that's our understanding of Christianity, and we don't get wealthier. When that's our understanding of Christianity, and my life doesn't seem to go the way that I wanted it to, and I'm not happier we start to deconstruct our faith. 
but let's be honest. Are we deconstructing our faith or are we deconstructing a postmodern paradigm that isn't completely true? Larry Crabb said, feeling better has become more important than finding God. And worse, we assume that people who find God always feel better. I think that describes where many of us in our postmodern world find ourselves in the Christian faith. That we thought something about faith that wasn't true, but it wasn't because faith wasn't true. It wasn't because Jesus wasn't true. It's because the way it was presented in our postmodern world and value system actually isn't true. So what's really happening here? Let's be honest. We're not deconstructing. We might even be destroying our faith, but it's not because there's anything wrong with our faith. It's probably because the assumptions and the belief systems we came to faith under were faulty. And this is the world that Jesus knew. This is the world that Jesus grew up in. And he didn't come with destruction in mind. He came with an end in mind. And he said, All of that stuff that happened was actually pointing to me because I am the way, the truth, and the life. And there's things that happened in your life, in your culture, in your religious background that you have to deconstruct, that you have to unwind. But don't destroy it because there's something better. There's something more beautiful. There's something good. There's something powerful, life-transforming. Don't let it all go. But let's be honest about why we're deconstructing. Why are you deconstructing? Why are the people around you deconstructing? Remember, the motive is important. When I start to rebuild a house or a basement, you know, my picture of the end matters. And let's be honest, some of us deconstruct because we're hurt. Some of us deconstruct because we're trying to differentiate between our parents or the tradition we came from. Some of us deconstruct because we had people in authority that betrayed us, that abused us, that let us down, that lied to us that they weren't trustworthy, and we projected that onto God. There's so many reasons, good reasons, why we find ourselves on this helix. But let's be honest with ourselves about why we're deconstructing. Let's be a little more self-aware of the world and the time that we live in and recognize that I might not be thinking as freely and openly as I thought I was. So you can't trust yourself. It's true. You know, modernism said we had to trust in external authorities and science. But the piece about modernism is true that, like, maybe science isn't completely trustworthy, but yourself, you can't trust yourself. That was true. But then postmodernism says you can't trust authority. Well, that's also true. Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. And belief, the word belief is kind of the same word as trust. He says, you trust in God, trust also in me. When we don't know what to trust, Let's be self-aware enough to recognize there's a whole lot of reasons on why we find ourselves in the place that we find ourselves. And we don't know which way to go. We cling to Jesus. That was the, the whole idea of point one. So doubt your doubts. Doubt your doubts. We're going to end here in a second. Faith and doubt are not opposites. They're only opposites if you equate faith with certitude. But faith does not mean certitude. Faith means trust. So we trust Jesus, but we doubt our doubts. Question your questions. It's good to have questions, but question your questions. Why are you asking that question? Where's the question coming from? Be honest with yourself. Deconstruct your deconstruction. Think more deeply about it. Jesus ended his ministry on earth. After the resurrection, he gathered the 11 disciples together, went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him. But what does it say? Some doubted. These are the 11 disciples. These are the 11 disciples who were with Jesus for three years. And after three years, some of them doubted. And yet Jesus said, he told those disciples, including the ones that doubted, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go. He said, don't let your doubts stop you. Doubt your doubts, question your questions, that's fine, but keep the main thing the main thing. 
They had a, a vision of the kingdom of God. They didn't know how it all worked out. They had questions. They had doubts. But they trusted Jesus even in the midst of the questions and doubts. And Jesus knew that their vision of the future, which he had given them, was enough. And so even in their doubts, he said, you go, keep going. And so I say to you this morning, doubt your doubts, question your questions, deconstruct your deconstruction, be honest with yourself about why you're thinking the way you're thinking, why you're questioning the way you're questioning. There's so many things that go on, but let's not assume, let's not assume that we're deconstructing the kingdom of God and the thing that Jesus actually came to bring about. We might just be deconstructing the version of it that we were handed, but we didn't realize it came with all these other things attached to it. And so we unravel it and we keep going deeper and deeper and deeper. Would you stand with me as we pray to close? After the service, there'll be prayer teams available. We'd love to pray for you. Um, I know that was a lot of information. You might want to go back and listen to it. (laughs) Um, But again, the point of where I was trying to bring us was I don't think we're always aware of our own motives. I don't think we're always aware of the things that are influencing how we're thinking. And one of the greatest lies of the enemy is to think that, you know, we are the separate autonomous being that has no other things influencing our neutral thinking or we don't have any biases. It's just not true. And Jesus doesn't expect you to figure out, but what he's inviting you to is cling to him. Truth is a person. Have your doubts, have your questions, but cling to Jesus. Truth is a person. Um, Again, we'd love to pray for you after the service. A reminder that there's a Mexico meeting at one o'clock. So Lord, thank you. We thank you that you are Lord, that you are God. Uh, Lord, that you are overseeing all of history and all these pendulum swings and reactions and re-reactions of which we are just one point in a long timeline of Lord, you are Lord of all of that. You are beyond all of that. Lord, and yes, there was things true in modernism. There's things true in postmodernism. But ultimately, the ultimate truth, the ultimate foundation of our being in reality is Jesus. It's you. It's you crucified and resurrected. And so, Lord, we cling to that. We hold our doubts openly. We hold our questions openly. We recognize that we don't see the whole picture. And Lord, in our humility, we cling to you. Lord, may you guide us around and around, deeper and deeper, into greater faith and intimacy. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you for coming. Stay warm out there. Uh, We'll see you next week as we talk about how to reconstruct uh, in a healthy way.